1: VR training platforms like the one developed by fundamental VR and Orbis international are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on
0: real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at
1: meta.com slash metaverse impact. Progressive presents adjusting to the suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in
2: this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two Ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa.
1: I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home at auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casual Key Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
2: There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature.
3: I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something uptempo. I want something snappy. In 1977, punk rock hit the mainstream. It energized the kids, scandalized their parents, and changed the course of musical history. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Kot of the Chicago Tribune. Today we kick off our
1: two-part series on 1977, The Year Punk Broke. We'll talk to music writer John Savage about the punk scene in the U.K., and later we'll review the new record from California rock
3: veterans Red Cross. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and it's time now to look at 1977, The Year Punk Broke. ¶¶
1: Anarchy in the U.K. by punk icons The Sex Pistols. Jim, as we've discussed on the show before, the history of rock music's filled with landmark years where everything seems to change. New movements emerge, and a whole bunch of great records get released. Listeners may remember that we've examined the years 1967 and 1991 on past episodes of the show. Today, we'll turn our attention to another game-changing year in music history, 1977. We're going to spend two episodes looking at the impact of punk rock in the U.S. and the U.K., and this week we're going to focus in on the U.K. because that year saw a deluge of incredible releases from native bands like The Clash, The Sex
3: Pistols, Wire, Buzzcocks, and many others in the exploding London punk scene. Absolutely, Greg. And to discuss that scene, we go now to Wales, where we're talking to John Savage, author of the definitive book on this era from the Brit perspective, England's Dreaming. John, it is a pleasure to have you on Sound Opinions. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. John, your book does an excellent job of taking us through uh, the sociological, cultural, and historic factors that led up to punk exploding in 77. But can you set the scene for us? Why did this music explode at this place in time?
4: I think that it was obvious that something like punk was going to happen. If you were a music fan, which, of course, I was and still am, you knew that something was going to happen because for several reasons really. First off, you had these precursors. You had people like the Flaming Groovies. You had people like, obviously, Dr. Feelgood in London who are fantastically important. At the end of 75, we in the UK started getting wind of the CBGB scene. There were articles about CBGBs in the British music press. And so it was obvious that something was going to happen, and musically it needed to happen for all the obvious reasons. And obviously everybody cites the dreadfulness of progressive rock, but it actually wasn't that. It was the fact that mainstream pop music was absolutely hateful. Hmm. I, when I think of 1976, I remember my life being ruined by three different records. And I remember hearing these records nonstop, and I totally hated them. And it wasn't a casual hate. It was an absolute burning hate. And it was Save Your Kisses for Me by The Brotherhood of Man, which is a Eurovision Song Contest winner. It was Fernando by ABBA. And by the way, <laughs> let nobody tell you that ABBA were hip. in Back in the day, ABBA were the enemy. and the final one was Kiki Dee and Elton John Don't Go Breaking My Heart yeah Whenever I think of why punk had to happen, all I have to do is remember those three records. But take it from me, the pop music of the day was absolutely terrible. All you have to do is look at any BBC Top of the Pops programme from 1976, and it's full of novelty records, it's full of not even good disco records, it's full of terrible disco records and inane DJs, and the whole level is sort of at a 10-year-old And there's no guts and there's no life and there's nothing there that seems relevant to kind of teenage problems and also the problems of the UK at the time, which were probably fairly similar to that of the US, only probably much more advanced. I know in New York, and New York was in a particularly bad state, so there was a similarity between New York and London, let's just take those two cities, and that was to do with the recession. It was to do with certainly in the UK with rising unemployment, although nothing like the level of youth unemployment we have now. By the way, mm-hmm. and you also had deserted inner cities. You'd had slum clearance, but you hadn't had the money to rebuild. So there were quite large areas of London which are now prime real estate, but then were just you know derelict buildings, destroyed you know corrugated iron. So the whole thing felt extremely. Dead, it felt as though everything was dead. And the term punk itself
1: is a term that would have been looked upon with aspersion five years earlier. Why was it embraced, and where did it come from?
4: I think it's really funny that punk rock now has acquired this kind of machismo. Punk is a passive homosexual, okay? A punk in 30s and 40s is like a gunsel, is like the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. And it's like what... You know, just an airplane said in volunteers, which is whatever it is you say we are, we are. You know, it's taking on what people say about you, the worst thing that people can say about you and throwing it back in their face. It's a handy term, really. And it was known as punk pretty much in the UK from spring 76. And people tried to change it and make it into something else. But punk, punk, it started and punk, it always was. One of the points
1: in your book, John, I think, was that New York punk was ahead of London in terms of just getting on the map, getting records out, getting noticed. Sum that up for us a little bit, because I know Malcolm McLaren, the future manager of the Sex Pistols, was fascinated, it was galvanized in seeing a band like the New York Dolls, and put some of that back into the London music scene. Summarize that story for us.
4: Yes, I've never been a one that gets into, you know, London punk is better than New York punk. There have been all these arguments over the years, and quite rancorous. And I just think it's very really stupid. What I really think about it is that punk was an idea that happened to different people in various Western cities in the US and in Europe at around the same time. Certainly the Impulse was there in Paris, it was there in Cleveland, it was there in London, and it was definitely there in New York. And in fact, obviously, the most organised Expression of punk rock in its earliest days in the 70s was in New York with the CBGB scene, with groups like Paddy Smith Group and Television, and my favourites, The Ramones. He'd obviously had a huge influence on British punk, also because a Malcolm McLaren, who was the manager of the Sex Pistols and the run- owner of the Sex Boutique in Kings Road, where the Sex Pistols originated, Sex, Sex Pistols, they were the group of the shop, had been to New York in 74, 75. He'd met the New York Dolls in 73, 74 and loved them and went over to work with them. And while he was working with them in their disastrous last days, he encountered the CBGB scene and saw... Uh, Richard Hell and the Ramones and people like that. And he thought, right, well, you know, I'll take some of this over. And he took, in fact, Sylvain Sil of the New York Dolls' his guitar and gave it to Steve Jones, um, back well, the Sex Pistols back in London. So it was the idea of taking elements of the New York scene, but not lock, stock and barrel. And that's always been the thing. One of the reasons I think the New Yorkers get so uptight about the English scene is that actually the, the Brits went further with it than the New York groups could. And... Mm. I was always very disappointed that the Ramones never made it, as big as they should have done. I mean, that first Ramones album had a huge impact on British punk rock. Apart from the Sex Pistols, who were up and running before that album came out in April 76, I know because I went out and bought it the day it came out in the UK on import, and it was April 76. And the Sex Pistols, you know, slowed up and slowed down. They had tension and release in their songs, whereas all the British punk rock groups had that na 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 you know, thing going on, the clash in particular, in the damp.
0: I got to feel inside of me. It's kind of strange, like a stormy sea. I don't know why, I don't know why. I guess these things have got to be. I've got a new rose, I've got a good dance, I knew that I always would. I can't stop to mess around. I got a brand new rose. See the sun, see the sun it Don't get too close, so your eyes. Don't you run away that way. You can
4: come back another day. And it was all as a result of seeing the Ramones. So the Ramones basically sped up British music. We're talking to
3: John Savage, author of England's Dreaming, getting a little bit of the background on what led up to the uh, to the Great Explosion, the plethora of music that came out in 77. You you were saying that the English took punk further. Now, Sex Pistols we'll have to deal with, but one of the fascinating things— <laughs> that sounds obvious. No, 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 we love them. <laughs> no, You've got to love the Sex Pistols. They're, they're as iconic as the Ramones. But when, when I think of the enduring influence of 77 and English punk today, I'm much more likely to cite the buzzcocks, wire, x-ray specs. I mean groups are forming today and really inspired by those sounds that were made in 77 and trying to take them somewhere new.
4: Uh, well, that's because all the groups you cited were and are very good. I mean, the whole point is about punk. Uh, you know, and the same with anything else. There was a whole load of rubbish, and I remember being at the Roxy and seeing all the groups that came through. And every new punk group would play the Roxy, and some of them, man, they were so ropey. Eater, what was the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> They were so bad and no amount of kind of retrospective, you know, revisionism is going to make me think that they were good because they weren't. From April 77, I was working as a journalist at Sounds Magazine, uh, which is one of the weekly music papers along with the NME and the Melody Maker. You know, I was kind of on the punk detail, so it was my job to go out and find new groups and I was very busy promoting X-Ray Specs and Buzzcocks and Wire and Subway Sect and Susie and the Banshees and American groups like uh, Perubu. And I was writing about the Ramones. And I was starting to write by the end of the year about the early San Franciscan and Los Angeles punk rock scene. And both of which, I think, produced some terrific records, which are still not very well heard, particularly in your country. I think it's a great shame. Mm. I think there were loads of, you know, and I, I was definitely not a little Englander about this. I thought punk was always thought punk was an international movement. And that was the whole point of it. And I really got irritated when Brits, during 1977, started to say, well, this is ours and, you know, get very chauvinistic about it. Boring. And it's the same as people from New York getting chauvinistic about it. It's music. It's an idea. It's a really good idea. And everybody can participate, you know.
1: No doubt about it. John, what about this amazing year of 77? The prelude to all of this, you know, were bands like the Ramones, etc., giving some inspiration to the scene, the New York Dolls. Then there was the vision. McLaren gets a lot of stick to this day from John Lydon and the other remaining Sex Pistols about what he did or didn't do for the band, mostly what he didn't do. But McLaren did have a vision. What was that vision that he brought to the Sex Pistols? Because at one point, you know, some people over here were saying, well, this is sort of like the Monkees. It's sort of a manufactured band. Obviously, it was much greater than that. But at the start, McLaren was pulling some strings, wasn't he?
4: yes i started the book with talking about mclaren because basically without mclaren i don't think the whole thing would have happened and just parenthetically i I think the interesting thing about a group that is manufactured or put together and a lot of groups are manufactured or put together is whether number one whether they produce good music and number two whether it actually connects with what people are feeling and thinking if it connects with what people are thinking and feeling then it's not a hype anymore it's something that's real and The Sex Pistols always played from the early days. In the interviews of the book, somebody said to me it was like they played with a mirror in front of them. They always got incredibly intense reactions, usually hostile to start with, but then there'd always be a few fans who'd come and see them, a few people who'd come and see them, and all those people, I'm thinking about Buzzcocks, I'm thinking about The Damned, I'm thinking about The Clash, would all go away and form groups, so that was incredible. (laughs) He was like an impresario. It was a bit like a British version of Warhol's factory. It was somebody who was pulling the strings, somebody who's in control, McLaren as Warhol, had this kind of arena. He had the shops, which are like Warhol's factory. All these kids came and hung around in the shop. They are exposed to weird ideas. They went out and enacted these weird ideas. And so you start to get a scene. And once you get a scene, it's not just a bunch of lunatics. It's a scene. It's, it's something that's happening.
2: The high priest of punk rock is Malcolm McLaren, owner of a punk rock fashion boutique and manager of the Sex Pistols, England's most controversial and, therefore, best known punk rock group.
5: The teenage kids who follow punk rock in this country, in their style
0: and form of dress is a total reaction against the packaging of youth clothing in this country. They are really concerned now with taking any form of clothing and making a statement with it by tearing it up, writing a slogan across it that suggests something of their own particular discontent.
4: McLaren made it happen. He had the clothes, they were very sharply defined, he put the band together, and I think his original vision was to have something like the Bay City Rollers, and and of course it's typical of McLaren that he actually messed up. (laughs) And a lot of McLaren's great strokes were in fact him making mistakes. And what it created was something quite bizarre, which is this kind of small faces slash faces type backing band with, you know, a sort of Captain Beefheart acolyte over the top, which is John Lydon.
3: We'll be back with more of our talk about 1977 with author John Savage after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we'll review the latest Power Pop release from Rock Veterans Red Cross.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the track Pretty Vacant from the Sex Pistols' 1977 debut, Never Mind the Bollocks. We're joined by UK music writer John Savage. He's talking to us about 1977, the year punk broke. John was on the scene in London when Bollocks came out. I mean, just look at that title. Never Mind the Bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. That was UK punk introducing itself to the mainstream. Here we are... The Sex Pistols were scandalizing straight-laced Britons using language like Bollocks and releasing these angry, sarcastic singles like God Save the Queen. I mean,
3: it doesn't get much more iconic than that music and that pink and yellow album cover. Bollocks is definitely a classic album, but John, listening to it today, I'm really struck by how conventional some of those sounds are. Those are classic heavy metal guitars and drums. Do you think it sounds as startlingly new and fresh today as it did in 77?
4: Well, I mean, the Sex Pistols, by the time they were recording the the album actually came out, it was almost like a tombstone. I remember reviewing it for sounds, and I actually criticised it. I mean, obviously, in one sense, it was unarguable. You know, it was the Sex Pistols, and it has 12 tracks, and most of them are pretty good. But on the other hand, if you listen to the record as a whole, it's actually quite airless. And already, by autumn 77, we were all getting used to kind of different ideas of sound. And as you say, it does sound a bit like a metal album, but it also sounds very compressed and there's no room in it to breathe. Mm. The problem for the Sex Pistols was that, you know, it was very dangerous for them in the outside world. They couldn't play concerts and they did get attacked, certainly after the Jubilee. And so they spent a lot of time in, in the studio. And, and the album is actually, I would say, overcooked.
0: God, take the queen, the
1: But that single, uh, May of 77, God Save the Queen, attacks exactly what you're talking about here, John, the, this whole idea of England living in its past, uh, still living off the fumes of 1945. They were celebrating the Queen's Jubilee at that point, and this, this single attacks that, that whole notion. Apparently, they attempted to ban it. Some radio stations did anyway. It still sold, what, a couple hundred thousand copies in a week? The impact must have been unbelievable. I mean, you were you were right in the middle of it. What was what was it like being in, in London at the time that single was released in May of seventy seven?
4: Well, "God Save the Queen" was actually banned right across the media. It wasn't some radio stations; it was all radio stations. Wow. It was banned by commercial radio stations. It was banned by the BBC, except one play on John Peel's show. The ad was banned on television. And you couldn't promoted in newspapers, the only place that gave the Sex Pistols publicity was the music press, and the only place that you could buy the record without fear or favour were independent record stores so actually what it was a record like that, to get to number two, showed the strength of an alternative youth media which existed then which adults just didn't really know about, so the music press, the fanzines, and the alternative record stores, shops like Rough Trade Beggars Banquet, shops all around the country there was always one record store where you could buy the record, and that, to me, was very exciting. Sorry? You've been banned by the Greater London Council, who <laughs> yeah. own all the halls.
5: Yeah, well, they, there's a blacklist no, down there. No, you can that, way Our name's the top of the it's blacklist. Better. As soon as a, any promoter puts you on and they use the <laughs> sex pistols, they take away the licence for a day. What's their specific objection, do you think? Hung rock, isn't it? They just hate it. Yeah. They control the stones, but they can't control us. Pardon <laughs> oh, me.
4: I don't know whether there's been an equivalent in the US but if you have something as basically trivial as a pop group being banned then you start to ask questions you know are we living in a free society well if we are living in a free society why aren't the Sex Pistols allowed to say what they're saying which isn't that bad they're not saying kill the queen or anything mm. they're just saying this whole thing is a it's a shuck this whole thing is a fake Mm-hmm.
1: We're talking with John Savage, the author of England's Dreaming Anarchy, Sex Pistols, Punk Rock, and Beyond, about the year 1977 in England. John, this whole idea of the no that is a dominant theme of the book, and and I think the biggest no was God Save the Queen in a lot of ways. Why was that such an exciting idea? It, it seemed to galvanize the youth culture that year in a, in a way that I don't think any moment in history since
4: has. It's a very, very strange thing. What I think about punk rock now is that it was the product of scarcity. And I think what happened with punk is that it started as a kind of musical protest. And then all these other discontents got funneled into it, which was, do you know what? The country's pretty bad. And do you know what? The television's pretty bad. Or do you know what? The royalty is pretty bad. Do you know what? Everything's bad. Let's write a song about it. You know, no fun, no future. And saying no at the right time, obviously it can get to be an incredibly bad habit, but saying no at the right time can be incredibly powerful.
1: incredibly powerful. The Sex Pistols had an amazing year in 77, both good and bad. What about the other bands in the movement, John? The Clash came out with White Riot in April of 77. They were obviously the biggest, or considered in retrospect, the biggest rivals of the Sex Pistols. What was the reality in 77?
4: I think the Sex Pistols lasted better. You won't hear the Sex Pistols in adverts because the Sex Pistols really do have a dark heart they just don't care hmm. and The Clash kind of cared which made them very approachable they were more conventionally if you like socially aware and socially concerned and in that respect they are almost like a 60s band
3: in all the introductions that I did I said that you prefer to be identified not so much as a rock and roll group but as a news giving group why
5: well I don't know maybe we just uh, too many songs have been written about love already you know subjects covered you know <laughs>
3: What do you want to say about the news?
5: The news is news, right? So it's not boring. I mean, it's what's happening now, you know. We like to plug into what's
3: okay, happening but now. What do but what do you want to say about what's happening now? We're just saying life is boring.
5: So we're trying to make it so interesting, make it more <laughs> okay.
4: I saw them do some great shows in 77 at uh, the Rainbow in London and, and at the Apollo in Manchester, two of the best rock and roll shows I've ever seen in my life. And the one in Manchester, I was in the press pit, and the kids were literally tearing the theatre apart and throwing the seats, you know, ripping the seats out and throwing them at the band. So I'd spent the whole concert dodging these seats as, as, <laughs> as they came flying over. And I remember looking up at Mick Jones, the guitarist, and, and, and he just went, What? <laughs> mm. What's this all about? What have we done? And so, in a way, the bands were almost the excuse for the kids to go absolutely mental. <laughs> I was much more interested in Buzzcocks. I thought Buzzcocks were fabulous and they still sound great. I listened to their first three albums recently. The first one, actually wasn't released until 1978, another music in a different kitchen but you know you had heard all the songs live and they released two singles, they released an EP Spiral Scratch which is sort of you know the start of indie rock basically and they released Orgasm Addict which is one of my favourite punk songs ever um, because it's funny.
0: Well you've tried it just for once, found it alright for kicks, but now you find out that it's a habit that sticks and you're an orgasm addict, you're an orgasm addict, sneaking in the back door with know on
4: the Go back to what you just said. Spiral Scratch, the start of indie rock. Explain that. Well, it's, uh, the Sparrow Scratch is literally the start of indie rock because it was released on an independent label. And it showed that you could make records cheaply, pr- produce them yourselves, release them yourselves, and sell 12,000 copies, which was a lot of copies at the time. What inspired them to do that? Well, I think in general, punk rock was a self-starter movement. It was full of people who were self-starters. And this is a major point of it, actually. Nobody's going to give you any money. Hardly anybody had any money so you know money wasn't an issue people weren't career oriented if you had something to say you had to do it yourself you had to whether it was doing a fanzine or whether it was producing a record and this was an incredibly powerful idea in many ways i think it's punk rock's finest legacy is that people feel empowered to do what they want to do to 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 make records to perform to write that you could do that and you didn't have to be fantastically skilled or or have a lot of expertise. And so a lot of it was just about raw communication, which of course is great.
3: There's a sophistication about the Buzzcocks in 77 with Spiral Scratch and then the first album that follows. If The Clash and the Sex Pistols were all about the explosion of energy, Buzzcocks are kind of taking a breath and incorporating all sorts of other things, aren't they?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, I always thought the Buzzcocks were quite psychedelic. Of course, they're from Manchester. You know, Pete Shelley had been into Kraut Rock and he'd been into Eno, so it's going to sound a bit different. There
0: <laughs> I try
3: Well, talk about the psychedelic connection, you know, uh, the damned had roots in it. Wire was signed by the (laughs) man who had signed the Pink Floyd, you know, a decade earlier. There wasn't this entire attempt to tear down the history of rock, which is how the mainstream media sort of portrayed it, especially in the U.S. You know, Colin Newman has always said to me that Pink Flag was their attempt to caulk a snoot at the entire history of rock and roll.
1: Well, the movement often gets reduced to that T-shirt that Lydon used to wear, the I hate Pink Floyd homemade T-shirt that he wore. And the assumption being that these bands wanted to completely start over and and forget about the past. But obviously this was not true.
4: I mean, obviously, the year zero stuff, you know, when you actually look at it, it does not hold up. But it was a very powerful idea. And I think it originates from Mark McLaren. You know, whatever everybody everybody else is doing, do something different. And we're going to create something out of nothing because everything's awful. Everything's crap. All the people involved in punk rock have probably been born between, sort of, say, 52 and 58. So they'd have all heard quite a lot of 60s music and late 60s, early 70s music. You get a lot of that in punk. You know, you listen to Submission, you know, the demo version by Sex Pistols. It sounds quite psychedelic. Mm-hmm. You listen to Cheat by The Clash, and it's got phasing on it. Mm. That's psychedelic.
1: there's a lot of crossover between what was happening in the states and what was happening in the uk but what in your mind are the primary differences if any between the two movements
4: oh massive well i mean the first difference is you listen to a song like see no evil by television and tom valen goes i understand all destructive urges Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK from same year, same time, Get Pissed, Destroy. So the New York bands are a bit older and they're writing about stuff. The British bands are younger and they're in that stuff yeah The New York bands are standing apart from it a little bit. And they've got this kind of, is this a put on or not thing, which the Ramones had. You know, second verse, same as the first. You know, you knew that they weren't just dumb. There was something else going on there. Whereas the British groups seem to plug directly into the teenage experience without any barriers. But the main difference, I think, is that the British punk rock groups, number one, they'd get signed by a Major. They'd get on national television. If they had a hit, except for the Sex Pistols, they'd get on top of the Pops. If you were on top of the Pops, you'd be seen by a third of the country. There's nothing like that in the States, which is obviously vast, regional. And back in the day, radio was very conservative then. I remember going to L.A. in 1978 and being appalled because <laughs> the radio was just nonstop. Beatles, Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I thought, oh... Mm-hmm. Things are really different here. There is no chance for any of these punk rock groups, none at all.
1: Yeah, that's very true. What is the legacy of 77? We're here 35 years later.
4: Well, I think obviously the legacy is in some great records, loads of great records from that particular year. But I think the idea is that pop music doesn't have to be the same old stuff. It doesn't have to be part of what oppresses you. It can actually liberate you. And that if you have something to say, you can say it. You don't have to wait for somebody to come and help you. You can do it yourself, and you should do it yourself.
3: Well, we've been talking to John Savage, author of England's Dreaming, about punk in the UK, 1977. John, it's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions.
4: Uh, Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. So Jim, we've just
1: heard John Savage talk about all the great records that came out in 1977 by people like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Buzzcocks. There were tons more, of course. And now what we would like to do is play some of the music that you and I particularly were fond of from that year. I mean, there's so much to choose from. So oh many great singles, so many great albums that came out in 77. The first flowering of punk rock in the U.K. I'm going to go to one of the more obscure bands from that movement, but I, but I think their music really holds up. And I think as an emblem of what was going on at the time, nobody really did it better than the adverts. Now, some people may say, what, who the heck are the adverts? But for three years, I think they epitomized what UK punk was all about. This is a band that formed in 1976, a co-ed band, two leaders in the band, Tim Smith, a.k.a. TV Smith, and Gay Black, a.k.a. Gay Advert. Now, some people think of Gay Advert as the first U.K. female punk rock star. They added two other players to the band, the greatest names in the world, Jim. I mean, in terms of just naming themselves, fantastic job. Howard Pickup and Laurie Driver, okay? You've got this quartet of people who travel to London, form this punk band, And they became one of the first bands to play the Roxy in London, just as it was becoming the primary punk club. Their first single was released in April 77. It was called, appropriately enough, One Chord Wonders. It summed up this whole idea that you don't have to be a rock star. You don't have to be particularly proficient at your instrument. You don't have to be this musical god to play punk rock. Anyone can do it. The license that you can get out of bed today form a band it was more about your ideas rather than your technical prowess and this song sort of embodied that idea and what's more it adds the caveat even if you don't like it we don't care we're going to keep going ahead we're just going to keep plowing ahead great melody those buzzing guitars in this one great package the adverts with one chord wonders on sound opinions
3: That is the adverts with one chord wonders from 1977. Greg, I'm surprised by your pick, although it makes sense. It does capture that anybody can do it, no talent or training required, (laughs) spirit of 77. I'm going the completely opposite direction with a song from Wire's debut album, Pink Flag. It's a record that came out in December of 77, just made it. The group had formed in 1976 after the explosion of the Sex Pistols. They were different in many ways from everybody else on the scene. They were a little bit older. They were a lot more educated. They were art students. Colin Newman on vocals, although he didn't write the lyrics. That was done by the bassist, Graham Lewis, a wonderful guitarist, although his role in the band really was spanner in the works, as he told me. Bruce Gilbert, he was the least guitarist, but he made a lot of noise. Great drummer, great name, like the adverts, Robert Gotobed. These four individuals from the beginning were looking as much at where punk could go in the years that would follow 77 as they were embodying the spirit of 77. They'd make three albums before disbanding temporarily in 1980 that would prove hugely influential on what would become alternative rock covered by and paid homage to by R.E.M., the Sex Pistols, the Minutemen, Sonic Youth, Husker Du, Ministry, Big Black, the Feelies, Chris Connolly, anybody who made inventive music in the 90s and today has listened to Wire, even though they didn't sell a lot of copies of this record. It is a perfectly conceived 21-song song sweet they were taking chuck berry and the velvet underground and the modern lovers and everything that they had loved that was not cheesy art rock and turning it into punk although they also had that art rock side you're not going to hear a lot of that expansive sound in the song i'm going to play but it is the spirit of 77 there are no heroes this song is called ...ex-lion tamer. It's about imagining Tonto and the Long Ranger without silver bullets... ...and Robbins quit the scene, the Capes Crusaders a loser... You just stay there glued to your TV set. There are no superheroes going to rescue us out of the plight wherein All we have is the music we're about to make. I would say, you know, you and I are asked a million times, what's the one album that has meant more to you in your life? I mean, how do you say The Velvet Underground or, 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 or this or that? You know, it changes from minute to minute. But I will say I've listened to this album and live with it more than any record in my life. Your life will be better if you haven't heard Pink Flag and start listening to it now. Here's Wire on Sound Opinions.
5: And I'm say
1: Ex Lion Tamer from Wire on Sound Opinions. Jim DiRigatis is picked as the classic track from the UK punk scene of 77. What are your thoughts on UK punk in 1977? Give us a call at 888 859 1800. And when we return after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll review the new album from California Rockers, Red Cross.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a song called Stay Away From Downtown by the California band Red Cross from Researching the Blues, their new album on Merge, home of many fine indie rockers, and their first effort, Greg, in 15 years. Red Cross was a hugely influential band in the indie rock era of the late to mid 80s and one of those bridge groups into the alternative period of the early 90s. They were formed in 1978 by two brothers, Jeff and Steve McDonald, who were only 15 and 11 at the time. They were really adopted as the kid brothers of the L.A. hardcore punk scene. Sneaking into shows by the Circle Jerks and Black Flag, members of those bands would play at different points in the ever-evolving lineups of Red Cross making their debut on a series of independent labels and known as much for their exuberant power pop, heavy metal, glam rock sounds as for their love of 70s kitsch. Remember, this is a period they barely experienced, but they were gaga about Linda Blair and Susan Day of the Partridge family, fascinated by Charlie Manson. Any manner of pop culture flotsam and jetsam was likely to find its way into Red Cross songs. They wound up signed to a major label, just as the alternative era was on the horizon. You know, 1990's Third Eye was one of those records that predicted that a band like Nirvana and its Nevermind masterpiece was just around the corner about to split open the mainstream but Red Cross never had success on that level and after an album called Show World in 1997 they went on hiatus been doing lots of other things one of the brothers is now in a band called Off who are an upcoming guest on Sound Opinions but here they are once again as Red Cross with the last lineup of the group a new label and a new record researching the blues here's a track called Dracula's Daughters by Red Cross on Sound Opinions
1: That is Dracula's Daughters from Red Cross and the new album Researching the Blues on Sound Opinions. You can hear the wistfulness in those vocal harmonies on that track. The brothers Jeff and Steve McDonald, there's nothing like those two voices melding, uh, along with Robert Hecker on guitar and drummer Roy McDonald, no relationship. And it's a great band. Maturity normally spells bad news for punk bands trying to come back and make a record this late in the game. But for these guys, they've really honed their sound. They've cut all the fat out of it. 10 songs blitzing by in less than 33 minutes, there's not a wasted moment on this record. Even the guitar solos sound great. I mean, 8 bars and they give it to you, and then they get out. They don't have a lot to say. They're not particularly profound. One thing I've noticed is that they've taken themselves a little bit more seriously. They don't have those kitsch culture references that made their earlier records so much fun. But in terms of just power-pop melody, I mean, these guys have just totally embraced and embodied the form. So I give the new Red Cross album, Researching the Blues, a buy-it rating.
3: I couldn't agree with you more, Greg. Researching the Blues is a buy-it record. I don't know about the lack of kitsch. I mean, Dracula's Daughters is uh, followed by a song called Meet Frankenstein. (laughs) But I agree. These guys have always been brilliant pop Craftsman. They grew up in Hawthorne, California, which also gave us the Beach Boys, right? It's in their blood. And, you know, what I loved about Third Eye in 1990 is songs that were surprisingly deep, like I Don't Know How to Be Your Friend, and there are several on this album. Winter Blues, the title track, Uglier. It's a great record. It's a power pop pleasure. It's been a great year between the DBs coming back with a great power pop album, Red Cross being back on the scene. This is a great album. I'm glad we're on the same page. It's a buy it for me as well. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we'll have part two of our exploration of the year punk broke 1977, this time from the New York perspective. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producers are Annie Minoff and Michael Gabonis. Our intern is Deborah Olalea. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. If he was an English punk band in 77, he'd be slaughtering the dogs. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Luis calling from Bloomington, Indiana. I was just calling to let you know I was excited to listen to your album, dissection of David Bowie's Rise and Fall of Biggie Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. But I must say I was a little disappointed in the piece. It would have been nice to hear a more in-depth discussion on the album instead of just uh, your rambling on your opinions of the album, especially with the fact that there have been a number of new books published on Bowie's Ziggy Stardust era uh, just in the past few months, most notably the book When Ziggy Played Guitar by Dylan Jones. And finally, I must strongly disagree with the notion that Bowie is, as you put it, a second-tier rock star. I would argue that Bowie is actually the most influential rock musician in the post-beatle era. I will sit right down waiting for the gift of sound and
5: vision And I will sing Waiting for the gift of sound and vision Drifting into my solitude.
2: What other artists has influenced such wide-ranging musicians as Lou Reed, uh, Philip Glass, Sex Pistols, Duran Duran, Boy George, LCD Sound System, Arcade Fire, TV on the radio, and the list really does go on and on and on. In no way is this man a second-tier musician. So thanks for listening to my opinion. Take care and uh, keep up the good work. My name is Evan Kepnick. calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I just listened to an interview with Jack White. It was excellent.
5: I was in the shadow, so I could not tell my nose was bleeding. Drip down my body to the floor, right below my feet. Look in the mirror of my face, I thought I had a disease. Hey. And now the woman with my fingers in my icebox. She beeped the rabbit hole asked me if I'm old.
2: I had to park my car and stop so I could actually listen to the whole thing. And it was really, really a fantastic interview. And I wish it could have been longer. I'm glad it was a little bit shorter, though, because I have things to do. But it was really great. So thank you for that, and thanks for keeping radio alive. I'm glad you guys are still rocking it. Thank you. so delighted to hear the interview with Jack White of the White Stripes. He and the band are what turned me on to modern rock music. I absolutely love classic rock, but um, I am now a modern rock fan as well because of the wonderful music that they've made over the years. And they've got a fan for life. Even though they've disbanded, they've got a fan for life. And thanks so much, guys. Have a great day.
0: But somebody left you in a rut and wants to be the one who's in control. But the feeling that you're under can really make you wonder how the hell she could be so cold. Now you're left denying the truth and it's hidden in the rhythm in the back of your tooth. You need to spit it out in a telephone booth while you call everyone
5: that
2: you know and ask them where do you think she goes. Hi, it's Chris Lukey in Cincinnati, Ohio. Jack Williamson, interview was great. He's an incredible artist. And it keeps opening up more and more and more, and you really get to realize the person that he is. I've been to Third Man about a month or two ago, and it's neat how often you get to go to a place like that 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 really just shows what this artist is and what he has to offer. It's it's incredible. I can't imagine what else he's going to have in the future. It's just amazing. So uh, thanks for the interview. It's really enjoyable. Take care.
0: I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer, and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? (laughs) No, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool.
1: Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.